Welcome. It is seven minutes after 11 o'clock. Dave Rowland will be with us in about 20 minutes. Planned Parenthood is going to continue at least another year. But Dave wants to know why the Missouri Supreme Court reached that result without reaching uh, or coming to a conclusion on the merits of the case. Didn't make sense. Also redistricting. But right now, Mike Murphy is in the studio. It's Como Buzz with one Z. ComoBuzz.com. You have a piece of real estate and you're renting it out. You're outside the city of Columbia. Well, Boone County may be giving you some hoops to jump through. Mike, what are they proposing? Well, it's a uh, complaint-based system. So unlike the, the city where if you have a rental house, you have to go register it, pay a fee, and they come and inspect it, and you have to meet certain criteria. So certainly the concept isn't unusual. Uh, there has been no such regulations in the county and in the unincorporated areas of Boone County. In 2021, so Boone County isn't a charter county. It doesn't get to make its own rules. It only gets to follow statutes that come out of Jeff City that are part of the uh, Missouri statutes. Well, in 2021, a, a bill passed and was signed into law out of Jeff City that allowed for counties to do some types of regulation of rental houses. So what just happened is uh, Boone County passed an ordinance that allows them to, or that not just not allows them to, it says they're going to regulate rental houses in the unincorporated areas of Boone County. Now, what that means is, or how they're starting out here, is it's a complaint-based system. That means they're not registering them, they're not inspecting them, they're going to react to complaints. So they've, des they've designated uh, their, their Department of Public Works, so to speak, uh, to take complaints, they've set up the uh, the standards, and they've they've made these rules that it, it involve like uh, structural protection from the elements. Uh, you got to have water and sewer and electric and heat, basic security things like that. Windows that lock. If somebody makes a complaint, one of their department will go out and investigate. Uh, if they they'll suggest uh, ways or or tell the landlords ways to abate these issues. If they don't do it, they'll get basically hauled before the county commission. They'll get an order to abate, and if they don't abate their their problem at the rental home, they will be guilty of a class C misdemeanor, which is a criminal offense, which is punishable by going to jail. So uh, that is now the law in Boone County. Yeah, why would I expect that? Boone County wouldn't leap at the opportunity to pass more rules and to involve itself in the in yeah. the private marketplace. Yep, I think they think they, as always, they think they're doing the right thing, protecting some consumers. But we'll let this play out. I don't think it's going to play out well at all. I think there's going to be a lot of pushback once it gets implemented. I'm not sure, you know, uh, if people are going to complain. If you're in a if you're in a poor rental and you're paying a low amount. I don't know if you go complain much. It'll be interesting to see the actual impact of that. this. Um, it is more regulation. I know that nobody wants to see the county coming, to see the county regulators coming. Uh, it's, they're, they're sort of, of uh, notoriously difficult to deal with. Um, there probably is some pretty bad rentals in Boone County. I know there are. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I don't know the impact yet, or I can't even predict the impact. Uh, but these regulations are on the books now, and... Uh, We'll see what happens. Um, I, I'm, I'm just putting my hand up in the air and say I oppose, just mm -hmm. so people know. I think there are free market solutions uh, that uh, could cost landlords even more if their uh, tenants uh, are being abused. Um, and, and 
having you know the 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 real estate police. Well, it's so strange. We have hundreds of people sleeping on the streets of Columbia, right? And I think probably, certainly, it's they're in the city because they have access to services here, but they're in the county also. Uh, affordable housing is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to come by. And I, I mean, I don't think anybody's really comfortable with the idea of somebody living in a in, a, in terrible conditions, but the truth of the matter, there are. And I think there are people on the streets who are living in tents who would be happy to live in some of these places that now we are going to be regulating. So it just seems a little incongruent, incongruent for the times. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's all right. I'll, I'll sink a ton of money into this thing so it meets everybody's standards. But then I have to charge more for rent. And oops, you can't afford that. That's what's happening in the city now. They, they passed this unified development code in 2015 that dramatically raised the cost dramatically is probably exaggerating, but it certainly raised the cost of building houses. Now builders are priced out of the market, so to speak. They're building in the county, and now cities back to the drawing board. They got lots that can't be used, and they got homes that can't be built in on these lots because of this unified development code they passed in 2015, and now they have an enormous uh, housing problem. So they're going back to the drawing board and saying, we overshot here, we got to fix this. And now they got all the political issues with trying to fix it. So... Yeah, they have to deregulate. Correct. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd like to see the city of Columbia do that. Uh, all right, uh, one more thing before we run out of time here, and uh, that is the Sanctuary City Ordinance. Where does it stand? Monday for- night, they will vote on that. City That will be in front of the city council for a vote on Monday night. I would predict a 7-0 to zero vote in favor of that, perhaps 6-1, to one, but I would bet 7-0. to zero. And at some point next Monday night, uh, the city of Columbia will be a sanctuary city, which really means very little to almost anybody living out there. Uh, they're expressing their support for the LGBTQ community. Uh, they've written, a, written a, a resolution. I've read it. I'm going to study it a little more and write about it here today or tomorrow in ComoBuzz.com. Um, it's a bunch of whereas is uh, the support about gender affirming health care has been proven to be evidence based, is medically necessary. Saves lives. Uh, oh, but wait a minute, wait yeah. a minute, wait a minute. There are s- studies now that contradict all that. I know. I know. It says that as a fact, though. It says the city desires to protect the health and safety and welfare of these people. Uh, the, the incidence of violence have increased. I'd like to see some evidence of that, too. Um, but that's what the resolution says. And basically that gender, this gender-affirming health care improves the well-being of these folks. And it's just, uh, then it lays out a whole bunch of... Uh, uh, a whole bunch of things that begin with except as otherwise required by law. So they're not going to break any laws here. They're just saying we're not going to initiate any prosecutions. We're not going to initiate any enforcement. Uh, we're not going to pursue any of any of these uh, laws that came from Jeff City here earlier this year, late last year here in Columbia to make this a safe, welcoming, and friendly place for the uh, LBGTQ community. You know, one of the two studies that they depend on to, to try to tell the, uh, the the American public that this is a necessary step, this uh, gender-altering uh, surgery, uh, one of those two studies has come out and said, uh, no, no, we, we screwed that up. That's not what, we, that's not what we're saying. Uh, and the other one has been exposed for having made all kinds of mistakes uh, with cohorts, etc. Um, 
it's frustrating to me that they're even involved in well this. that's exactly the problem it's like i don't really seem i don't really care but you look around you know columbia the, 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 there's no police the buses aren't running the water isn't running we can't pick up recycling our infrastructure is falling apart uh, we can't get people to work at City Hall. We're trying to get roll carts implemented. We got homeless people laying all over the place. There's panhandlers on every corner. I, I, you know, we got a Ward 1 uh, council getting a recall. They got issues to just, there's so many critical issues in the city. And, you know, nobody wants to say, hey, we, we really got better things to spend our time on than this. But that's, that's, that's where we're at. Listen, uh, on Sunday mornings, uh, if I'm sitting around the house thinking I, I would love some current events, uh, some some good talk radio, uh, I might turn on uh, 93.9 The Eagle. What, what yeah, might I hear? Yeah, you sure might. Uh, we, have, we have guests who are in the news every week, and we get right down and into it. I think we have some really good radio going on for two hours. Uh, I'm hoping... Uh, I'm hoping to get this uh, some people from the county and also maybe a political candidate to go get going on this rental regulations in Boone County. That seems to be a topic I'd like to get into this Saturday morning. Maybe the sanctuary city issue. I'm not sure if I, you know, I'm not, I just don't know how much of a big deal that is. People want to talk about it. But we get into these issues that we're talking about and reporting on uh, every week, get the people that are involved. And we have a, uh, we have some really good talk radio that goes on Sunday mornings, eight o'clock. <laughs> Coma buzz with two Z's, by the way. Yep. Yeah, Como Buzz. Uh, but it's 8 o'clock on our home station, right 93.9, yep. The Eagle. Yep. Dave, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I'm looking, Dave yep. Roland is uh, on the line. Uh, very much appreciate your coming in, keeping us up to date, and look forward to uh, Sunday all morning. Right. Thank you, Gary. All right, Mike, Como Buzz with one Z. Uh, all right, Planned Parenthood funding is going to continue at least another year. Dave Rowland wants to know how it is that the Missouri Supreme Court reached this uh, conclusion without going, uh, you know, concluding anything on the merits of the case. We're going to find out in just a few minutes on the Gary Nolan Show, Think Tank Thursday, Zimmer Radio Network. Wow, this uh, this case in, F in Fulton County is really exciting. This is really interesting. Uh, it's just that it's it's hard to it's hard to play on the radio. Uh, but it it appears that uh, the, the attorney is uh, making some uh, real inroads in exposing uh, some falsehoods on uh, the part of Fannie uh, Fannie Willis. Uh, we'll if we have time, we'll get into it. Uh, in the meantime, Dave Rowland is here. He is the freedom fighter. He is the guy you turn to when the government tries to trample your rights. And uh, frankly, I would I would argue that. Uh, Nobody does that better than Dave Rowland. Uh, Planned Parenthood, Dave, funding is going to continue for another year. What's the problem? Well, honestly, Gary, the problem is not so much the Supreme Court's decision here. The problem is the Attorney General's office. Um, so what happened here is the legislature has once again tried to zero out the amount of money that they were going to send to Planned Parenthood, which, of course, is an organization that provides abortions, um, that provides abortion counseling. And so the legislature decided we do not want to fund this. Planned Parenthood then sued and said, you can't cut us out of the funding this way. And they made a couple of arguments. They made one argument that was focused on the way that the bill was passed. And then they made another argument that focused on equal protection of the laws. Basically, they're saying we are being singled out 
for negative treatment, and that violates our rights under equal protection of the laws. So here's the weird thing about this, Gary. The Cole County Circuit Court ruled in favor of Planned Parenthood, said that the bill uh, did violate the Missouri Constitution as far as the way that it was passed, but then also held that it violated Planned Parenthood's right to equal protection of the laws. So the Attorney General's office appealed, but they only appealed the ruling in regard to the structural way that the bill was passed. They did not appeal the ruling that the bill violated equal protection of the laws. So the the Missouri Supreme Court gets this, and they look at some of the arguments that the Attorney General's office made, um, and they said, so for example, the Attorney General's office was trying to say that Planned Parenthood had an obligation to go to the Administrative Hearing Commission before filing the lawsuit in the courts, and they made a couple of other arguments, procedural arguments like that, and the Supreme Court slapped those all down and said, no, that's ridiculous. Um, Planned Parenthood gets to file the lawsuit, but now let's look at the merits, and wait a minute, the Supreme Court has a long-standing policy that if you only appeal part of a judgment below and you do not appeal part that would reach the same result, that would that would lead to the same result, then they don't address the merits. They say, you failed to appeal part of this case in which you lost. Therefore, even if we ruled in your favor on this one issue, you would still lose. Therefore, we're just not going to address it at all. And that's exactly what they did. They said, um, we're not going to address the merits of this uh, question about how the bill was passed because you failed to appeal the equal protection ruling, in which case, even if we ruled in your favor, you would still lose. So the question in my mind here, Gary, is how in the world the attorney general's office made this mistake? This is honestly, this is a serious mistake. It is a rookie mistake. It is not the kind of mistake that one would expect to be made in high stakes litigation. Um, I actually, I texted an attorney friend of mine yesterday and I said, is it possible that someone in the attorney general's office wanted to lose this appeal? Because that's, that's how badly I, this was. I have a, I have a hard time imagining the level of incompetence. Uh, existing in the attorney general's office that this would require to fail to appeal a critical aspect of the case on which you lost. But that's exactly what happened. And that's why they ended up losing this case. Um, so, you know, it, it, it does beg the question of, of exactly how this error happened. And it reflects quite poorly on the attorney general's office. It was so uh, so blatant. You actually think it couldn't have been an accident. Somebody must have been. Well, I mean, it, it could have been incompetence. I'm not going to say an accident. Like it, it was either incompetence. Like it, an accident is something that just gets overlooked. Like oh, I, I accidentally neglected to include this in a case like this where they were appealing. Someone had to have made a decision not to appeal this part of the case like there had to have been a decision and maybe it was because they mistakenly thought it wasn't necessary but 
that's not a mistake anyone should make who has any experience in Missouri appellate courts. And, and uh, frankly, in federal courts, federal courts would likely have handled this the same way. Um, it, it is a, a severe mishandling of the case, um, which resulted in, in losing what could have been a winnable case. So, um, well, so let yeah, me, I let mean, me, I, let I me, let know. me jump in here for a second. Is, sure. is it the attorney general that crafted this case? Does the attorney general have the final say so on the case or is this all being handled by an underling? I don't know. So that gets to a question of the internal management of the Attorney General's office, and honestly, I just don't know how they handle this. I know that the Solicitor General's name was on the case, and in cases that I have had going in front of the Missouri Supreme Court where the Attorney General was on the other side, usually it was the Solicitor General handling it. I don't know who argued the case. I don't know if if the Solicitor General argued it, Um, but... Somewhere along the line, whether or not Andrew Bailey himself put eyes on it, and it's perhaps he didn't, he may have trusted his underlings to handle this, and that would be an understandable decision to make if you believe your underlings to be competent. But but somebody really blew it in this case, and it's a primary reason why why they lost. Uh, I I don't know what to say. I don't know. The only person I know there has, is not an attorney. Uh, but I am curious. Maybe we'll see if we can get the attorney uh, general to uh, to come on the program. In the meantime, a legislative redistricting case. Uh, the the Missouri Supreme Court upholds the state's uh, the state senate's uh, district map drawn by the judicial panel. What gives? Yeah. So every ten years, when we have a, a federal census. Um, the state redraws its legislative maps. That happened uh, recently, and we have a new maps for the state Senate. And they were challenged, um, as they almost always are. And one of the arguments that was made is our Constitution says that if you are going to divide a community, we're, we're talking about cities or towns or counties, if you're going to draw a district line that splits a community, then you cannot have a population deviation of greater than 1% among the different districts. In other words, they're trying to create districts that have roughly the same number of voters in them. And the Constitution says you're allowed to let one district have slightly more voters than another if it's necessary to avoid cutting apart a municipality, drawing a line that splits a municipality into two different districts. But if you are drawing that kind of a line and you are splitting the, the, the municipality, then you cannot deviate in population more than 1%. Um, and here, they split two different cities to draw these district lines. The deviation was greater than 1%, and yet the Missouri Supreme Court upheld the the maps. Now, there was a dissent. Judge Powell wrote a dissent, and he was joined by Judge Wilson. Um, but, but the bottom line is, is the way the court approached this is they said, well, we are only going to strike down rules if we believe that they clearly and plainly violate the Constitution, and we just don't believe it's plain enough here. Um, this is what happens when you grant deference to the government in every constitutional case. The, when the government gets that deference, the constitutional principles suffer. Uh, I don't even know what to tell you. Uh, if it were, you know, if it was you or me, well, we'd, 
we'd have uh, we'd be uh, held with our feet to the fire, but apparently the government can get away with it. Uh, the Eighth Circuit rules uh, Twitter block violated the residents' free speech. That's next. This is the Gary Nolan Show. He likes to fight for your freedom. He is Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org. Uh, slash donate because uh, he will represent you for free, but he relies on donations, and these cases get expensive. Uh, the uh, Eighth Circuit rules that Twitter uh, a Twitter block violated uh, St. Louis residents' free speech. Yeah, this is an area of the law that we've talked about a fair bit over the last few years because our friend Cherie Tolson Reich had uh, a lawsuit filed against her uh, regarding blocking people online. She won her case um, primarily because the court concluded that the social media account that she was using was established as a campaign account. And so when she was communicating using that social media account, it was her voice as a private citizen campaigning for office, not as an elected official um, conducting their office or doing, doing the business of their office. The Eighth Circuit just reached the opposite conclusion regarding the Board of Aldermen, the president of the Board of Aldermen in St. Louis City. Um, he had blocked some critics on Twitter, and they sued, arguing that he had violated their First Amendment rights by um, punishing them for their free speech and by cutting them out of the communications he was making as an elected official. And the Eighth Circuit looked at his account, and they said the difference here is he was using his official account or the official account for the president of the board of aldermen. This was not a private account. It was not a campaign account. This was the official board president account that was used to announce policies, to get feedback from, from constituents. And that's why in this case, they held he did violate the citizens first amendment rights by blocking them on Twitter. So that, kind of raises the question of where do we go from here? And the answer is the Supreme Court's going to be deciding this just in the next couple of months. Um, they have taken a couple of cases dealing with blocking constituents, public officials blocking constituents on Twitter. Those were argued uh, back in, I want to say, October or November of last year. And so we are getting to the point in the calendar where we could reasonably expect the Supreme Court to hand down decisions in these cases. And that's going to provide a lot more clarity in terms of what rights citizens have in relation to the social media accounts that are being maintained by government officials. Um, we've talked about this. I think that it actually is quite important for citizens to be able to access uh, politicians' social media accounts, particularly when we're talking about a politician using the account to formulate or announce policy. So President Trump would frequently announce policies from his Twitter account. That was kind of one of his hallmarks. And so if people were blocked from viewing or interacting with those posts 
on Twitter, then they would definitely put it at a, a substantial disadvantage compared to other citizens. Um, and they also were cut out of the conversation that would then take place online uh, in the comments on those posts. And so I personally think that this actually is a, a pretty significant First Amendment issue. We do not know yet whether the Supreme Court will agree with me. It's possible that they will. I think it's likely that they will. But um, who knows? Maybe we're in for a surprise, and they'll, they'll go a completely different direction here in the next couple of months. How long do you think we're going to have to wait for a decision in the Colorado uh, ballot case? I would expect that to be coming down quickly. I don't know how quickly um, there are likely to be multiple opinions handed down. There's going to be the majority opinion, uh, and then I would expect there to be at least a couple of concurring opinions, maybe a dissenting opinion. Um, usually opinions are not announced until the concurring opinions and dissenting opinions have reached their final form, but that is not always the case, Gary. In very rare circumstances, the Supreme Court will go ahead and issue a majority opinion and simply note that concurring or dissenting opinions are forthcoming. If it looks like there's any kind of foot dragging in terms of the formulation of the concurring or dissenting opinions, I think the court will go ahead and issue an opinion, uh, a majority opinion, pretty quickly. And they may just say, we are still awaiting these additional opinions. They'll be coming along. But here is the ruling of the court. And I, I expect that because it is such a crucial issue and because, frankly, time is of the essence. Um, the, the people of the United States need clarification about how the Constitution is supposed to apply in regard to President Trump and his ability to be listed on ballots and, more importantly, states' authority to exclude him from primary ballots. And so uh, that, that's why I expect to see uh, a ruling from the Supreme Court in the next week, probably no more than two weeks from now. If you just turned the radio on, uh, Liberty Fighting Attorney Dave Rowland with us, MoFreedom.org. Fighting in favor of liberty, not fighting against it, just to be clear. <laughs> Was I ambiguous there? I'm sorry. Well, liberty fighting could go either way. So yeah, let's, let's I had a girlfriend. Sure. I had a girlfriend like that once, but never mind. Uh, all right. <laughs> uh, kids, they've got First Amendment rights, too. Yeah, they sure do. Um, states don't always like to recognize that. You know, we, we saw this issue come up back in the 90s, um, talking about uh, children's access to certain types of music. And then it was kind of rehashed in the early 2000s uh, about children's rights to access video games and things like that. Now the big issue is children's rights to access social media. And so we've seen states all over the country starting to adopt these laws that say uh, that companies have to screen the age of people who are signing up for their accounts. Um, and the the barriers that they're being put in place vary in their degree of, of the burden that they're creating. Um, some of them you just have to input a birthday. Some of them require proof of age, like you have to show a government-issued ID, things like that. Um, but but this case that uh, that I brought up to you involves an Ohio law that basically said that children under 16 um, were not permitted to participate in social media, or at least certain types of social media. And a group of internet uh, companies 
challenged it. And the judge here just issued what's called a preliminary injunction. It's not a final ruling, but um, it tells the government, okay, you are not allowed to enforce this law uh, until we get to the final ruling because it's pretty likely that I'm going to strike it down as unconstitutional. And the judge pointed out that, um, number one, children do have First Amendment rights. And the laws that these states are putting into place, including this Ohio law, um, are focused on the content of the communications that take place on these platforms. Um, and the law applied based on what kinds of communications were taking place. And so the judge looked at it and he said, that's what we call a content-based distinction. And the U.S. Supreme Court has been really clear. If you are distinguishing how a law applies based on the content of the communication, then the government has to put forward a compelling government interest to justify the restriction, and they have to show that it's narrowly tailored. And the judge looked at this and he said he was a little bit skeptical about the government's interest here, but most importantly, he says it's not narrowly tailored. Like, this is like, you know, trying to kill a fly with a sledgehammer. Um, if you've got a true concern about how teens might be impacted by social media, there are far more nuanced and and specific laws you can put into place rather than just trying to block them from this content at all. And because we, we have a First Amendment, because it applies to children, even as well as adults, um, you have to use these more carefully tailored policies rather than, you know, the big sledgehammer of just blocking children under a certain age from, from this kind of, of media. Um, I think it's the correct decision. I definitely think it's the correct decision. Um, the real question here, I think, is whether it's going to impact the states that are looking at adding similar laws. One of the things I've been kind of surprised by in the last few years is even when you have a federal court making clear that a certain type of policy is unconstitutional, um, you sometimes see lawmakers passing the laws anyway to score political points. They know, they have to know that these laws are going to be struck down as unconstitutional. And when that happens, they're probably going to be funding their political adversaries uh, because they're going to recover attorney's fees. They're going to get damages uh, when they win in court, and yet they do it anyway. We, we see this on the left with California and Hawaii and New York passing laws that they have to know violate the Second Amendment and that courts are going to find violate the Second Amendment because of the way the U.S. Supreme Court has interpreted it. Now, on the right, we're seeing states like Ohio, like Florida, like Texas pass similar laws that they should know are likely to be ruled unconstitutional, and yet they do it anyway to score political points. I, yeah, I, I am really frustrated with how that happens, but um, that's kind of the political the, the political world we live in right now. I like the Hawaiian Supreme Court setting the U.S. Supreme Court straight because they apparently know better. And uh, it's, it's the spirit of aloha, Gary. <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, it's not going to go over well, I'll tell you that. Dave Rowland is our guest, and uh, we'll talk about a unanimous Supreme Court ruling in Tiger v. Hennepin County that was supposed to 
put an end to equity theft, but has it? We'll find out next on The Gary Nolan Show. 1151 on a Think Tank Thursday. Dave Rowland is with us. He is the attorney that loves to fight to protect your freedom. When the government steps on your toes, you go to mofreedom.org and see if Dave can help you. By the way, uh, I get uh, every once in a while uh, somebody says, well, ask Dave if a government official can do this or that. If somebody thinks they've had their uh, rights trampled, how do they get a hold of you to ask those questions? They can go to mofreedom.org, um, and we have a potential case form. So if somebody has a, a situation where they think maybe they've got a lawsuit uh, against the government, then they can fill out some uh, answers to the questions that we've got on there and send them to us, and that's how we review our cases. And we get uh, scores of potential case requests. I think last year was our all-time high, and we had more than 60 uh, potential cases uh, submitted to us last year. But we do review all of them, um, and if there's a situation where we think we might be able to help out, then we'll reach back out and we'll communicate with um, with the person who submitted the form. Um, there are also opportunities sometimes to contact us and get general perspectives on issues. Um, you can call our, our office number if, uh, if someone wants to get some general perspectives, although I do caution, sometimes I'm under the gun working on a case and I've got to get something filed, and we won't always have time for kind of a, a wide-ranging conversation. But I do try and uh, respond as much as possible when people have general questions about how government works, how the Constitution applies to the government, because that's important for people to know, and it's part of the reason that we exist. So there you go. Just uh, go to the website and uh, and ask the questions. We uh, are really crunched for time, and Dave always has a lot of great cases, so I don't want to slow us down anymore. Uh, what is the Supreme Court ruling in Tyler v. Hennepin, and did it result in, you know, anything... Uh, Positive. Well, it was it was a it was a wonderful victory. Um, this was a case where uh, an older lady had a condo and she got behind on her taxes, and the city sold her condo, or rather, the county sold her condo, and then instead of just keeping enough money to cover the tax debt, they kept all of the proceeds, both the tax debt and the equity that she had built up in her property. So she lost not only her home, she also lost the equity that she had built up. And so this was called equity theft. And the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously held it violates the Constitution for the government to sell someone's home for a tax debt and then keep the extra money over and above the amount of the tax debt. Some places have figured out an end run around this. So for example, in Arizona, they allow governments to sell not the property itself, but to sell a lien on the property. So, for example, there is a 70-year-old woman in Gilbert, Arizona, who has a property that's worth more than $375,000, but she got about $1,600 behind on her taxes. And so the city put a lien on her property and then sold the lien to a private company. And now the private company is foreclosing on the property, and they intend to keep all of that three hundred and seventy plus thousand dollars 
that should be the equity that this woman has built up in her property. So it's an end run around the result in Tyler versus Hennepin County. Fortunately, there's an organization like ours called Mountain uh, Mountain States Legal, and they have stepped in and they are representing uh, the property owner in this case, and they're arguing, hey, look, you can't do indirectly what the Supreme Court has already clearly said you cannot do directly. All you're doing is basically outsourcing the illegal conduct to this other company instead of having the government do it themselves. And so I'm hopeful that uh, Mountain States is going to succeed in this lawsuit and that it's going to protect this particular homeowner. But if for some reason the courts go the other way on this, then effectively they'll neuter um, the the fantastic result in Tyler versus Hennepin County. So we'll see. I One other thing that's important to point out is that Arizona is currently considering amending its statutes to make clear that you can no longer do this. So if Arizona amends its statutes, then it accomplishes uh, the same thing as if a court says, constitutionally, you're not allowed to do this. Uh, it protects the, the homeowners from this kind of thing. Um, but it's up in the air right now. And, and that, of course, is concerning. You know, we, we want to see these, these court victories um, translated into real world effects. And in order to do that, sometimes we have a little cleaning up that needs to be done, either legislatively or in the courts, to make sure that these little loopholes are closed off. And that's exactly what's happening here. Can uh, can the can the government argue we're not profiting from this, or are they getting yeah, a kick? That, that that is going to be the argument. The government's going to say, "Hey, look, all we're doing is taking the amount of the lien that we are owed. We're not taking anything else, so it's no longer a constitutional issue." And Gary, that could be. I don't think it should be a winning argument, but it's not a crazy argument. And so, um, you know, I, I hope that the courts will nip it in the bud, but it is not a guarantee. Well, uh, time will tell. Uh, again, if you're having a problem, if the government is trampling your rights, uh, then uh, Dave Rowland is your guy. Um, and, it, and if you have a couple of bucks to donate, uh, that makes it easier because he, he doesn't charge. In fact, even when you prevail, you don't take uh, you don't uh, you don't we do get a attorney's fees. Yeah, we, but you we don't... get attorney's fees, but no, we we never charge our clients anything. Right, and you and you generally, if I'm not mistaken, um, it, it don't try to get a bunch of money for your client. You just you want justice. That's right. Yeah, we, we ask for nominal damages, which is uh, basically one dollar. Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Gary. All right. We got to run. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day. Carpe diem, Gwen, baby, honey, I am coming home.